When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't know what there is to talk about because Jesus died because God's so pissed off at us. End of conversation. Please Welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another Deconstructionist Reconstructionist podcast. We're the Deconstructionist Reconstructionists. No, we're not. We're the Deconstructionist podcast who also reconstruct. We are your hosts. My name is Adam Narlock. And I am John Williamson. And we are just thrilled to be here. We've got another uh, epic. How do we get these people? I don't know. I don't know either. It makes no (laughs) sense. Having so much fun doing this, guys. Um, this is a listener-formed and informed broadcast. This is yet another person that was not on John and Mai's radar right. um, until the Twitter sphere started going crazy. Like, you guys should get this guy. And so here we have him. Yeah. The one and only Tony freaking Jones. Oh, my goodness. And Tell this us is, about Tony. This is a guy that I actually found out after the fact. I'm like, wait. I've got one of his books. You had his book. I had his book the whole time. The whole time. That gem was sitting on my shelf. It was just waiting for the right moment. And uh, I mean, unbelievable. I read The New Christians. Um, seriously great book. Check it out. But this guy is um, just a super amazing speaker, uh, author, uh, pastor, and uh, um, he's educated. Uh, he got his PhD at Princeton. So another Princeton PhD grad there. Um, and, uh, just, he served as a police chaplain at one point. Yeah, that's cool. I thought that was super unique, but Simon, the guy we had on episode two, our senior pastor was a police chaplain. That's so crazy. Yeah. It's super fun. But, uh, yeah, just a, just an amazing, uh, guy and, uh, you know, just has multiple, multiple, uh, bestselling books out there that you should check out the, the, the newest one. Uh, did God kill Jesus? Mm. Uh, great book. Um, provocative. Yeah. Really provocative. Intentionally so, I would imagine. Oh, completely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's like, hey, sometimes in order to talk about something, you need to totally stir it up. Yeah. And that's what happens. And then you get branded as a heretic and you know, you'll know you have that. But there's there's value even in that. Can we say before we brand people as heretics that we should probably read their work first? We should probably read their work and maybe give ourselves like a one-year rule. Yeah. Like- Okay, I think this guy's a heretic. I'm not, I don't actually, but like, yeah. let's just say hypothetically that I think someone is a heretic. How about I grab their books, mm-hmm. listen to some podcasts, right. some teachings, whatever, and then give myself 365 calendar days 
where I do not call this person a heretic. Right. No matter what. Can I quote you twice? You're going to quote me? I'm going to quote you twice. You ready? What? This is a double whammy. Oh, no. I'm going to say, can we just chill? Can we just chill? Hashtag, can we just chill? Can we start that? <laughs> can we start that? Can people start Everybody that? Everybody needs to chill. Let, hashtag, can we just chill? We need to chill. Start that. We need to freaking chill. And I think the other quote, the other thing that I that I love that you said a while back, and I don't remember now, it's all blending together, but you mentioned at one point, you're like, look, we don't. you don't need to agree with everything. Hmm someone says to agree with anything that they say dude if i said that that's pretty cool yeah i like it you may have stolen it from somebody but that's <laughs> I'm sh- fine i'm a hundred percent sure credit. that i did everything i say is like if you look at the soundtrack to a movie yeah if you look at the soundtrack to a movie and you flip over the soundtrack to a movie if you actually have a physical copy of like the cd <laughs> or the lp or the cassette tape or yeah. whatever It'll always say these are songs of or inspired by <laughs> yeah. this movie. And everything I say right. is of or inspired by someone. Yeah, I don't even <laughs> want to have original thoughts. They're so overrated. There's too many good people to steal from. It's true. But uh, no, I just, I just think that's an important thing to note. And I think that at no point, I think, have we ever said on our show that, hey, this particular guest that we, ha- that, that we have on the show, you need to agree with everything that, that they say to listen to it or appreciate it. Um, we bring people on with, with differing opinions, different backgrounds, different life stories, um, different stages of life that they're in, different expertise. Um, and, and I think it's just important, man, just to, to open up enough and to, to be stay a part of the conversation, I mm. think is what I'm getting at. Yes. So stay a part of the conversation, listen to what they have to say, and I promise you that even if you don't agree with everything that you have to say, they have to say, um, at the end of the day, you're going to be able to take away something from them. Yep. That's useful. Yep. So without further ado, let's roll tape on this thing, man. There is a yeah, lot of content in here that you never feel like you're drowning in because he's got such a great way of, of yeah. coming across that you you always feel like you're right on his level. So it's a good thing maybe we might have him back. Oh, we're having him back. <laughs> I don't even care. We can let the cat out of the bag. Yeah. We just became best friends. It's happening. Yeah. So without further ado, Deconstructionists, here is Tony Jones. Well, uh, Tony Jones, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Thanks, guys. Man, Thank we're, you. we're really excited to have you on here as a recovering... I'm, exci- <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Ah, oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. We're a, we're a very easily excited crew, so... You must be an Enneagram 7, then. That's you got the, it, man. I'm an... Enthusi- uh, yep. Enthusiast. I'm an, I am an Enneagram 7, and uh, I am... Perfect. I am I'm happy to be so, but I'm trying to dial it back for some of our listeners at, <laughs> right. at times. Gotcha. Well, dude, I want you to—I want you to be totally enthusiastic about my new book, like more than any anything else you've ever had on the show. So bring it on. I love it, Tony. Your book is the best book I've ever read. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome, man. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, did God kill Jesus, and we're going to talk about some other. 
some other things. Uh, but before we get going into that, yeah, like the new Christians is definitely one that uh, a lot of people listening to the show have probably read. We connected with, would you mind just kind of walking people through a little bit about kind of who you are and uh, where you've been and what's going on with you? Yeah, you bet. I think, um, a big part of who I am is a Minnesotan. <laughs> I grew up here. I, I currently live about two blocks from where I grew up. Oh, wow. I have a really uh, close family. We spend a lot of time together. My kids go to the same schools that I went to. Um, so we're real committed to just being rooted here. And, you know, we know friends and family. We're very committed to the community, stuff like that. Um, I went out east for college many years ago. Uh, after college, I went straight to Fuller Seminary in California. And that was because I was at Dartmouth College and I had like the dudes on the campus crusade staff told me I should, be, I should go to Dallas Seminary. And my, <laughs> my senior pastor at my home church told me I should go to Union in New York City. And that's, if you know anything about like the landscape of Protestant seminaries in America, that's like the farthest right and the farthest left. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Know? I know a little bit about and it, man. So, yeah. So I was like, there's got to be some place <laughs> in between those two. Right. And also, um, you know, the, the thought of going to the West, living in LA for grad school is pretty fun. So I went to Fuller and loved, loved, loved it. And that's, I mean, when you guys, you know, the, the title of your podcast and kind of what you guys are about, that's really, you know, in, for a lot of us, the journey began very early when we started questioning things about our faith. And, but it was really at Fuller where I was, um, I was introduced to postmodern philosophy through classes with Nancy Murphy and Jim McClendon. Mm -hmm. And that had a profound impact on me. Now, mm. Um, Nancy Murphy's brand of, of postmodern thinking was not the deconstructionist of like the French uh, philosophers. It was more of a more of a um, American, it, what she called an Anglo-American take on it. So it had a lot. We studied a lot about uses of language, the way that language um, shapes our understanding, the way that language. Um, does things. That was a really big topic. Language does things. It doesn't just represent things. Um, Man. And it just like blew my mind. It blew my mind. And it really, in so many ways, saved my faith. So then a few, year, a few years later, uh, when I was in ministry in a church as a youth pastor, I was like, well, these ideas, they basically rescued my faith. So either, like, I'm completely kidding myself here, or these are really valuable ideas. So what I'm going to do is write a book, put these ideas out in kind of the, in the public square and see if I'm just full of crap or if this is really helpful stuff. So I wrote my first book. It came out in 2001. It's called Postmodern Youth Ministry. Oh, yeah, and, that's right. And it did really well and it really resonated with a lot of people. And then for about the next 10 years, I mean, I was writing books and stuff like that. But for the next 10 years, I was basically, as well as um, working at that church and then subsequently going to Princeton to work on my PhD. But all that while I was on the road speaking about youth ministry, hmm. like speaking about postmodern youth ministry, and then later 
uh, speaking about the emerging church, which was a movement that we started right in the middle of that, um, right when my first book came out and stuff like that. So, yeah, that man, that um, that that's kind of the short and sweet version. Hey, would you mind diving a little deeper into one thing I was actually going to ask you, and you already kind of touched on it. Uh, I think I thought it was fascinating when I was getting acquainted with your work and things like that. That one of the things you said is in this spiritual journey, and maybe it was at Fuller under this Nancy Murphy professor that you had, but you had mentioned that Heidegger saved your faith. And you know, a lot of our listeners aren't going to be familiar with Heidegger's work or postmodern philosophy yeah. um, and that. But I wonder if you can just kind of dive into that a little bit. Like, how did Heidegger save your faith? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I, um, about 10, 10 years, I graduated from Fuller in 1993, very steeply versed in this Anglo-American version of postmodernism. So, and I don't say this to turn off listeners who've never heard of these names before, but for people who are, these names will mean something. It's like, we read a lot of um, Quine, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, mm-hmm. J.L. Austin, people like that. Those were the people. Yeah. Uh, Alistair McIntyre, Stanley Hauerwas, that kind yeah. of um, yep. thing. Yep. When I went to Princeton 10 years later, so I graduated from Fuller in 93, I had 10 years of ministry, and then I went to Princeton for a PhD in theology. And at Princeton, the kind of 20th century philosophy that we read was not the Anglo-American version. It was the continental European version. So we read in this line of uh, thinkers that are, it's like Husserl, Heidegger, Gadamer, um, and uh, Derrida. Yeah, yeah. And so, right, I think Heidegger and Gadamer both, were extraordinarily important to me and to, you know, to simplify what, why they were important to me. It's because they showed the importance of hermeneutics or to use a less, you know, PhD like word interpretation. They basically made a very convincing argument that all of human life is interpretation. We interpret events, we interpret texts, we interpret um, verbal and nonverbal communication that we get from other human beings. That's all we do is we interpret. And uh, I found that, uh, again, really, really helpful, especially for people who come from a more conservative vantage point and struggle with these ideas that, oh, the Bible is inerrant, you know, the Bible is um, without error in yeah. all matters of not only of faith, but also in science and history. And when you learn about this, this idea of philosophical interpretation, yeah. you're really able to let go of some of those, of all those, really, of all those feelings you have about certainty and things happening mm. through and did they actually, you know, like we're Adam and Eve, actual historical persons, and that, like, that goes from being a big argument. You know, when you're younger, you guys maybe have had this experience, but... Um, you know, somebody will say something like, it doesn't even matter to me if Adam and Eve were historical people. Uh-huh, and you're right. like, what? That's the <laughs> only thing that matters. <laughs> you're like, that's just the most arrogant, like, wishy-washy Brian McLaren statement I've ever heard. How can you <laughs> and, say that? Yeah. Right. Like, and, but then, 
as you grow older and you read more and you think more, you start to, you, you know, you start to find yourself saying some of those same things like, yeah, this debate about creation versus evolution, like that's the wrong question, you yes. know? And now you're mm. like, Oh crap. Now I sound like Brian Clarence. And uh, that's when you know you've swallowed the red pill. Oh, yes. freaking Brian McLaren. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so one of the people that, that Adam and I both love, uh, we both read Phil's Tickles, uh, The Great Emergence. And I just love yeah. how in, I think it's maybe 145 pages where she wraps up like this insane amount of history um, of the church and how, you know, once every 500 years or so, the, the, the church as a whole kind of goes through this, this uh uh, reinvention. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about your work within emergent, uh, Christianity and kind of maybe give people a high level overview of what, what that term even means and what, what that even looks like. Yeah. Well, Phyllis was one of my closest friends and I miss her like mad. She was, she was a great help to me, uh, both in my career, like professionally, we were colleagues and Personally, we were very, very dear friends. Um, Man. The whole emerging church thing really started in the mid to late 90s. There was there were just these groups of people who started getting together, talking, and planning events, conferences, gatherings, because we could tell there was something afoot. And, you know, because I was doing youth ministry and I was working on this book at the time called postmodern youth ministry, I was brought in as kind of like, hey, you're the youth ministry guy, you know, and other people were talking about singles. A lot of people talked about singles ministry in the 90s. You don't hear that so much anymore, but it was a big deal back then in those in seeker-sensitive church, churches. And a lot of people, Doug Paget, Chris C., Mark Driscoll, they were church planters, and they were starting brand new from scratch churches, and they were doing it oftenly in gentrified um, areas. They were taking over old abandoned churches. They were meeting in coffee shops. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as a result of those innovative forms of ministry, you know, there were like articles in the New York times about it and Christian century and Christianity today. And, um, it was like a thing, you know, like every conference, then by the early two thousands, every conference had to have like an emerging church speaker on the, on the docket. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Absolutely. So, we were getting a lot of speaking requests, and we were getting book deals, etc. And um, Brian McLaren was a big part of that. And um, in 2003, we invited this sweet old lady to come speak at one of our conferences, and it was Phyllis Tickle, and she had written some prayer books, and she had worked for Publishers Weekly and was kind of a renowned um, expert in uh, just American religion contemporary American religion. Well, she quickly understood what was happening in the emerging church better than better. Even than those of us who were in the midst of it could understand it. She just had a historical perspective and she had been a journalist and she, she just could step back and understand what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really so, so beneficial to us to have her around and, yeah, she wrote about it in that book and a couple subsequent books, but The Great Emergence is really, it's just amazing how um, she just really had a way with ideas and words. And Yeah, she did. And that's a book I would re- recommend to anybody. Yeah, 
Absolutely. When I first come, I came across Phyllis Tickle, I, I, I called John and I was like, I think I've got a crush on an 80-year-old author named Phyllis Tickle. Yeah, yeah. I, think uh, I was crushing on her similar. hard, man. I still am. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. We were so bummed. We didn't know that she had passed and we were really, mm-hmm. really, really bummed about that. And uh, she, everybody should look up everything she's read. I, I really think that her, some of her best work was right at the end there when she wrote The Age of the Spirit. I was, yeah. oh my gosh. Man. Well, she would have loved being on your podcast, you guys. She would have done it in a heartbeat. So, oh, uh, thank you Tony. for saying that. Yeah, she was amazing. Yep. Uh, so, um, one of the things that I'm I'm absolutely fascinated with, and I, I dove headfirst into uh, the new Christians dispatches from the Emergent Frontier, which I highly recommend to everybody. Um, one of the things that really kind of touched me was where you kind of go into um, kind of the denominational. Uh, churches and and kind of how they are um, almost having a difficulty, um, you know, kind of following along with the times and kind of uh, evolving. Um, my dad is actually an ELC Lutheran pastor and has been for over 30 years. And uh, this is something that he actually gave me the, a copy of, of your book uh, because it's oh. something, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's been he's been uh, interested in for a long time. Like you know, why why are these uh, these denominational churches you know hemorrhaging, you know hemorrhaging people and and uh, and why are you know are the new millennials, the youth, not interested in in uh, coming to these churches? And so I, I I thought it found it very fascinating where you talked about kind of uh, you know emergence as kind of a third option between kind of these old denominational churches and kind of the fundamentalist movement. Um, so at this point, I'm just kind of curious your take on with the advent of technology and kind of where we sit now, even compared to where we sat when the emergent movement kind of first started. Um, is this something that's just kind of I- inevitable at this point as we become more of a pluralistic society and technology allows us to communicate with other people and other religions, other, you know, other people across the world? Yeah, I think what's, I, I think what's, been the big story in the 10 years since the new Christians came out is the, the kind of disengagement of Americans across the board to, toward all religious communities. So in that book, I was pretty critical of evangelicalism, obviously, for theological reasons, but I was just as critical of mainline liberal churches for being kind of basically bureaucratic fundamentalists. Mm, yes, yep. absolutely. You know, if your dad, if your dad's been an ELCA pastor for thirty years, like he's, you know, he's had a lot of frustrations with the bureaucracy. I'm quite sure. Absolutely. Whether it's with his bishop or his synod or the uh, church headquarters in Chicago or whatever. Yeah. Um, because those big bureaucracies have struggled over the last ten years as their fortunes have fallen because people are going to church less and less. So there's less and less money in the plate. Um, and there are, you know, churches are closing and there are two, like here in the twin cities, there are dozens of unemployed ELCA clergy because, you know, they're, it's obviously a hub for Lutheranism with, um, Luther seminary and Augsburg fortress publishers and, the oh, two yeah. synods here in Minneapolis and St. Paul are two of the biggest ELCA synods in the country. So sure. there are a lot of pastors, and there just aren't even enough churches because 
you know, churches have closed and churches that used to have five ordained clergy now have two. Yeah. Um, mm. So that was my criticism back then was uh, of the mainliners and their kind of bureaucratic fundamentalisms. But now I think, I think even the mainline churches would admit that now most of them would say, you know, we got a real problem with bureaucracy, but what they're, um, you know, I say what, what's going on now is just people are so unengaged yes. yeah. with r- religious communities in general, and people are just disengaged with community in general. And, uh, yes. so I think that's, a, that's the big story now is people, um, just feel very little reason to invest themselves in a, in a church, in a faith community. Mm, absolutely. Uh, what's interesting, too, is that you, you also mentioned the fact that the other side of the coin, uh, kind of the evangelical movement, as you said, you were, you were critical of them as well, uh, kind of preaching this kind of individualistic message, which has had uh, a major, which has caused major issues in, in, in regards to affecting large-scale social change. Um, do you think that's still the case? And do you think that, you know, the, the kind of more emergent movement um, is the answer to that? Yeah, in so many ways, um, the emergent movement was, you know, 90% of the emergent movement when it came out was out of evangelicalism. And it was the disillusionment that a lot of people like those names I already mentioned, Padgett, C, Driscoll, um, and I could go down the list with one or two or three dozen more names. Brian McLaren even is coming out of an evangelical experience, and they're very much disillusioned with uh, the, the theological boundaries of evangelicalism. Mm, yeah. um, and so... And the, and the fundamentalisms and the conservatisms within those. And, and the, the, you know, one of the phrases I used in that book is like theological border guards, you know, and yeah. that, that you feel like it's a bounded set. There's people standing at the gate. And if you leave, like if you say, I don't know about the Trinity or the virgin birth, you know, kind of, I don't know. I don't really know if I buy that you you know you pick anything penal substitutionary atonement or the inerrancy of scripture right. historical Adam and Eve and like any one of those things and you're out you're out of that camp sure and yeah. these were church planters who wanted to build authentic communities where people could have questions and doubts and now I I mean it's it's hard to even remember this but now you see a lot of you'll see ads in the newspaper on Easter or whatever for a church it's like come to our church where it's safe to have your questions and doubts. But I got to tell you, like in 1995, there was freaking nobody who was saying this church is the place for your questions and doubts. Wow. Particularly in evangelicalism. Like there was, that would have been anathema to say that this isn't the place for questions and doubts. This is the place for like, like double down on your biblical literacy, you know? <laughs> right, now, right, right, right. So if you want to say, like, what's the, what's the legacy of the emerging church, that's one of them. You know, that now it's okay to talk openly in a church about questions and doubts. And, and it, you know, before, it would, that would have just been completely unheard of. Absolutely. 
What uh, leading into just kind of starting to zero in more on your material, um, obviously your work was shaped by some of the questions that you yourself had, that the people around you had, and that you looked at as less uh, closed-handed issues and more like, hey, these are these are more conversations than they are dogmas or than they are uh, non-negotiables. What are some of the yeah. big, some of the big ones? You know, before we start talking about your 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 latest book, what were some of the big ones that you really saw caused some real brouhaha's in some of these circles? And and how did your interest uh, really start to focus on a couple of them? For me, it became pretty clear pretty early on, like when I was in seminary, but for sure once I got out of seminary in 93 and then later by like 97, 98, I was starting to hang around with these guys who would later become known as emergent, um, that it really all boiled down to the Bible. Like, Hmm. why do creationists fight so hard for a historical Adam and Eve that they will build a museum with like a diorama of Adam riding a dinosaur, you know, like yeah. why would somebody be that completely insane that they would do that? Well, because I found out it's all about the Bible. So if you say they believe that if you say Adam and Eve is a mythopoetic story that teaches truth, but not necessarily grounded in historical fact, they'll say, well, now the, now, now Jesus never lived, and there's no such thing as the resurrection. And you're like, you know, what? Like they, you're like, wait, 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 hold, hold on a second. <laughs> How do yeah. you go from there to there? Yeah. Right, How do you right. go from there to there? Whoa, whoa, whoa. But these guys, that's exactly what they think. So, you know, everything they fight for is about maintaining this, this literalistic, inerrantist approach to Scripture. And I really think all these other arguments maybe not the atonement argument, which is what that, uh, my most recent book is about, but most other things that they argue about come down to the veracity of scripture. And they think scripture is only true. If every single thing in it is literally historically, factually, scientifically true. It's true in just one specific way. Yeah. And, and, um, so, that's really the one. I mean, I think that's mm, the thing that that's it that that I realized when I was you know early in my ministry, and even when you're in parish ministry and you're talking to people, you know, parents of the kids who are in the youth group, mm-hmm. um, that becomes a hangup for a lot of them, and a lot of them who don't even you know really know the Bible or really understand the Bible, and yet they you know will argue till they're red in the face, right, that the Bible is absolutely true and in every aspect, this kind of thing, factual in every aspect. Yeah. It, it sounds, um, a lot of the things that we've been uncovering both personally, uh, John and I both going through seasons of doubt, deconstruction, reconstruction, um, playing, wrestling, uh, you know, I love Walt Brueggemann's phrase, just struggling with scripture and, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's just a really healthy thing, but um, I know what it's like to be on the other side where I didn't know very much, and I felt like I had to defend it, even though I didn't know very much. And I found so much more freedom in saying both: I want to learn more, and I want to defend. Yeah. I want to defend less. So, whereas I think a lot of people learn more so they can defend more, I actually want to learn more while almost defending less. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, at, right. At the same time. 
No, that's a really nice way to to say it. You know, I, I didn't grow up in a real conservative environment, but even in my kind of moderate environment, we still, you know, the, the people who influenced us and the books we were reading and the books my youth pastor was quoting, it was still James Dobson and Josh McDowell, and there were a lot of apologetics involved. You know, and we all read Josh McDowell um, more than a carpenter. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like that, it's funny that making a defense for the faith uh, in, in, the, in that era of if you're growing up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, that was such a big part of, um, of your youth group experience that it's tough to disabuse yourself of that when you get older and be like, Actually, I don't have to defend Christianity. Yes. You right. know, like, I have to live Christianity, and I can learn, but, right. yeah, it's not my job to defend it. That's, well, it's a really, it's us. a really, personally, from my experience, what I realized, and then now on the other side of it, and I always say, you know, it's it's hard, because I know I'm putting, you know, 35-year-old language to 15, 14, 15, 16-year-old experiences, and that's kind of not fair. It's a little revisionist, but at the same time, one of the things that I realized is that defensive... Um, yeah, you got to get out there and almost crusade. I mean, there's, you know, a popular campus ministry that has had to recently change their name because they realize that's kind of a turnoff it's called, you know, the crusade there is crusading, uh, this, this kind of, uh, offensive defensive, um, positioning w- w- what I, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's, it's pretty bizarre because what I realized is it's like, you know, it, it's a very strong identity formation tactic that is used when you give people a sense of that kind of mission and importance and position, and you're saying, hey, this beachhead, you know, this position we have rests on your shoulders. You know, we're going to lose the mm-hmm. culture. We're going to lose the government. We're going to lose society. We're going lo- to stop being salt. We're going to stop being light if we don't know how to defend and stick up for and rise. And that is a very, at that, at that young, tender age, you know, when your prefrontal cortex is just starting to develop, man, that gets into you. And that is tough to ever turn off. So I get it. Like, Yeah, I, uh, I mean, that's one thing that I did not grow up with in my more mainline environment was, you know, we definitely had the apologetics and the evangelism kind of stuff. It did not cross. I didn't, I wasn't really exposed till later in life to this idea of mixing this brand of evangelical Christianity with, um, like nation state politics Mm. and world history. And it's like, you know, I used to watch when I was a kid, I watched, you know, Jack Van Impey late nights on TBN or <laughs> yeah. whatever. And I just thought, this guy is batshit crazy. Like, there's no way, no way people actually take this guy seriously. But then you start to do the math and you're like, the only reason he's on TV is because people send him money. And the right. only reason people send him money is because they do take him seriously. They do yeah. think that he's, you know, accurately interpreting the news headlines. Right. And you just think, whoa, this is such a foreign version of Christianity. But I, you know, I can absolutely see what you're saying about when you're an adolescent mm-hmm. and you're like pastor and your parents lay that on you. Yeah, man. So like world history hangs in the balance on like how you share your faith or like the activities of the church that like God will is going to come back or not come back based on things we do. Right. Just think. 
this is crazy. I, there was, and it's in that book, the new Christians a little bit, but when I got to, when I got to college, uh, it was 1986 and Bill Bright, who mm-hmm. founded campus crusade for Christ, yep. he had made some, uh, goal for campus crusade, like that every single person on the planet would be reached with the gospel by the year 2000. Wow. And then, because he said, like, then Jesus will come back, because there's some verse in the Bible that right. kind of possibly implies that Jesus will come back when everybody hears the gospel or some crazy stuff like that. So <laughs> that was then, then that became the, like, that was the, the goal was we're going to share the gospel with every single person on the planet by the year 2000. We're going to start with that, that dorm right there. And then we're going to go over to that fraternity over there. And it's just like, yeah, Holy moly. That's a lot. Yeah. That this is, that for, you know, it just goes on and on how, you know, kind of the, the layers of wackiness and just kind of how far out we get. And it seems like a lot of what people like you are doing is you're just trying to offer a tender, loving, uh, generous correction to just, you know, open it up a little bit. Let's, let's loosen the grip a little bit here and maybe actually take this thing we call faith seriously. Like if it's actually faith, then why are we all freaking out and white knuckling? And, and, you know, it's like, wait, wait a second. Like anyway, so this actually connects perfectly to, I think it's a great segue into some of the meat of what we want to talk about regarding your work, because if you're doing, you know, Bill Bright and you're on campus and, you know, you feel like you're a Christian soldier and all that kind of stuff. The first thing that you better get straight is why Jesus had to die on the cross. And, right, and, and, right. That, and that is something that you're going to find in every little pamphlet handed out at a football game or on a college campus or any track you've ever seen in your life, Four Spiritual Laws. Everybody's seen one. Everybody's been given one. And it makes this complex, rich, mysterious, uh, divine, uh, human thing called Jesus, and especially the crucifixion of Jesus, you know, it's it's the approved message. It's this marketing piece that here it is. It's this one thing and this is what it is. And it's, that's what we call the, the atonement theory. Um, could you kind of get into that a little bit? And this, this has to do with your book. How did God kill Jesus? So just, just go, man, just do your thing. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what there is to talk about because Jesus died because God's so pissed off at us. End of <laughs> right. conversation. Right. Ba- basically every track I've ever seen. Yeah. Complete with cartoons of fi- mean, fire uh, consuming people. And, yeah. Yeah, Jack, the old Jack, uh, Jack Chick tracks, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the common evangelical understanding of why Jesus died on the cross is because God is so sorely, not only disappointed in us for sinning, but God is actually wrathful because by our sin, we have offended God's honor. Basically, we have taken something away from God, and that is God's honor. Mm. And because we've dishonored God, God cannot allow us to spend eternity with him in heaven. And I use him because these people always definitely think about God as a male. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is a lot, this is what a lot of us grew up with. So one of the, you know, one of the common, um, like one of the common analogies we'll, we'll hear 
for what it's like, um, you'll hear a youth pastor say, oh, it's like uh, a, a judge is behind the bench and he convicts a criminal to death, um, like convicts a criminal of guilt and then sentences him to death for something terrible he's done. And then instead of sending him to the electric chair, the judge stands up, takes off his robe and goes to the electric chair for the criminal. Yeah, so basically, right. there was there is a just sentence of death, but the uh, judge decides to take the penalty on behalf of the of the criminal, and then they'll say, "Well, this is exactly the same thing that happens." Um, you know, same thing that happens with the crucifixion. We have stolen God's honor by sinning, and God then. Uh, you know, convicts us of guilt and sentences us to eternity in hell. Mm-hmm. And then God's son or God in the person of Jesus comes along and takes that penalty for us on our behalf. Right. And um, that's the very theory that is not only regnant in the Western world, but I think you're right. A lot of people think, in fact, that theory of Jesus' death is synonymous with the gospel. When you talk about the gospel, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about, you're talking about Jesus taking the penalty for us. Right. And so what my book does is shows to people, I hope in a way that's very readable and not very kind of theologically thick, that there are lots of different ways historically that the church has understood Jesus' death, and there are even newer understandings of Jesus' death that have been developed in the last 50 years that are Mm. really fascinating and beautiful and life-giving. And that um, when you put the whole variety of atonement theories up against one another, that version that I've just talked about, this this penalty, payment penalty version yeah. of the atonement is, in a lot of ways, the least attractive. It's not necessarily the least biblical. They're all kind of, they all have roots in Scripture. Totally. Um, there's not, you can't just take one version of the atonement if it's the only one in the Bible. There are kind of a bunch of them in the Bible. Mm, that's a good but, point. Um, you know, my book is trying to uncover that there, this is a multiple choice question, and it's the answer is probably all of the above. But I'll keep coming. anybody listening to the show, it's like, okay, we're talking about atonement theory. We're talking about what happened on the cross on a cosmic level. Like what actually happened? Why did it have to happen that way? What was accomplished? Tony, why does this matter? Like, what are the implications of these beliefs? Like, why should we care? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I think why it really matters is because when you talk about the atonement, um, you really have, it, it, it implicates 
so much else. Um, because what you think about the atonement implicates what you think about God, what mm. you think about God's, God's relationship to Jesus, which means it has implications for the Trinity. It has implications for God's relationship with humanity. So it, it implicates your theological anthropology. Wow. But like your, your Christology is affected, your doctrine of God is affected, your doctrine of Scripture, your theological anthropology... Uh, your doctrine of the Holy Spirit is affected. It's like peeling the layers of the onion. So that's why I think it's such a fascinating aspect of theology to really drill down on hmm. the atonement, um, because it, it, particularly this question of, like, what do you think is the nature of God? Do you think God is fundamentally loving and graceful and merciful, or do you think God is fundamentally judgmental and wrathful and legal? Right, and yes. Oh, he's both. God's both. You're like, well, okay, but but your your understanding of the atonement and Jesus' death says a lot about what you think God is like at at God's very heart and soul, you know. And mm. um, so that's why I think it's so fascinating, and yeah. that's why I wanted to write it. I I really think, yeah, in a lot of ways, atonement is just a case study in getting to people's doctrine of God and trying mm. to figure that out. Oh man, that's huge. So what are some of these other theories? Take us, walk us through some of these and use some really yeah, great, well, great language. Thanks. Yeah. I, I, what I did was I took that high theological language from the past <laughs> and, uh, tried to, you know, rewrite it in ways that were more, um, more approachable for people. So you've got the one I already talked about, which, uh, uh, I call the payment model of the atonement or also called the penalty or punishment model of the atonement. Hmm. Um, there's another one called the victory understanding of Jesus' death, and that is a very ancient understanding of Jesus' death. It's, it's Today it's promulgated most famously probably by Greg Boyd, who's a pastor here in the Twin Cities. <laughs> yeah, we just um, talked, we just we talked, just to, talked to him. <laughs> oh, yeah. So he thinks like a lot of the ancient church fathers thought that there's an epic spiritual struggle between God and Satan and that uh, Satan is defeated in the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we have victory over Satan and over demons and evil spirits as a result of the crucifixion and that that's the primary uh, means. So that's the victory model of the atonement. Um, there's another one that's, called the magnet theory of the atonement. And that says that Jesus' death on the cross is this incredible example of self-sacrificial love. And that when people see that and confront it and experience Jesus' sacrificial love in his death on the cross, they are like, like the world's strongest electromagnet. They are like caught in the tractor beam of God's love and pulled in because of the incredible power of Jesus' death on the cross, that Jesus' whole life and death was about setting this example for love that would be, um, you know, that when people get caught up in, in this in this magnetic force, they, they would have no choice but to kind of fall into Jesus' arms. So that's another one. Um, uh, there's another one called, that, uh, that, that I told you about, there are some more recent ones, and one of the most recent ones that I write about at length in the book is the mirror theory, which was developed by a 
sociologist, I mean, an anthropologist named Rene Girard. Oh, yeah. Died just, uh, a couple years ago. And he argues very persuasively that um, the history of human religion is that what religion did was it ritualized violence Whoa. in sacrificial um, worship. Hmm. So animals, or in some religions, even humans, would be sacrificed, and that bloodletting um, would, um, you know, really assuage the mob violence tendencies in a society. Hmm. Scapegoating. And yeah, scape, it's a scape, he calls it the scapegoating mechanism. Yeah. And that when, and that when Jesus died, what he showed, because he was of God, and he truly was innocent, he showed once and for all that the, that the scapegoats are not guilty, and that their death actually does not appease the gods or God. That mm. they're, it's, it's a purely human mechanism that results in people being killed um, to, you know, get rid of sin or whatever. So, he, um, so yeah, so, so it's really, so basically I call it the mirror theory because it's like God on the cross, you look at the cross and God is holding up a huge mirror. So we look at it, we look at Jesus dying on the cross and what we see is our own violence reflected back at us. Whoa. So Jesus death, it's basically pulling the veil off of our own um, sacrificial systems and scapegoating and calling bullshit on the whole system. Saying wow. the whole system is saying the whole system of sacrifice is bankrupt. That's not what God wants. That God, not what God ever wanted. Um, so no more, no more sacrifices, no more, no more bloodletting. Unfortunately, Man. obviously we still have a great deal of bloodshed, um, both inside and outside of religion. So it, it, the, the tricky part of that is it didn't really do the trick. So those are some of them there. And I've got a few others in the book that, uh, you know, I got to, I got to leave a few out there. So people have a reason to buy the book. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what are, what are your, what are your hopes for this book? Like, you know, this is, this is a massive thing that is really striking at the heart of Christianity because at the heart of Christianity, there's this enigma of the cross, you know, the enigma of the God, man, you know, the God that dies, uh, the blood, the, the it is offensive no matter what you do with it. And I think a lot of people, they just try to either pull it out or overemphasize it in, in one particular way. And it seems like you're doing something else with this book. So what, what, is, what are your hopes for this book? What do you want to accomplish? Um, you know, what I want to do is... Uh, it, it, uh, my highest hopes are that it would really revolutionize the way it understands the death of Jesus. Hmm. My realist, my realistic hopes are that it's really helpful for people and uh, for people who struggle with this bloody Jew on hanging on an execution device yeah. and being like, really, really, what's this about? Like, right. Why do yeah. we have a religion whose central element is, blood and death and execution. Like right. why wouldn't God have saved us by sending a million flies? Yeah. And, right. and like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. here's a million butterflies. 
Um, you know, I, I did the rainbow last time, <laughs> and I, I forgave everybody of their sin, and we started over. Right. And now I'm sending a, a trillion, gajillion butterflies, and <laughs> this is my symbol to you. The slate is clean. I forgive your sin. We're good. Instead, it's like this bloody itinerant rabbi from first century Palestine hanging on a cross and um, you're like, what the heck, man? Like, why? Maybe I should become a Buddhist because yeah. their guy just sat under a tree, you right. know, and like wasn't experienced enlightenment. And I, I do think there's beauty in the cross and the crucifixion, even in its um, even in its gory, harsh elements. And so that's that's my hope that people like who really struggle with that aspect of Christianity, if that's kind of what's keeping them from really giving themselves over to Christianity. That they yeah. would read it and be like, oh, "Okay, okay, it's not because God is pissed at me; it's because God is like fully entering into the human experience of suffering, and God has I, God knows what it's like to be human. Man, okay, like that, I can live with." So what about what about the crucifixion and leaving it in there? You know, let's not. Um, I think uh, there's a, there's a push from a liberal side, and it's a, it's a it's a very very liberal side to just kind of remove it. Let's just let's either not talk about it or take it out. But it sounds like you're saying that there's there's beauty here and complexity and ambiguity, and we got to wrestle with this. But what Tony, what about the cross? Do you find beautiful? Like what? Like just personally, like what? Why do you want to keep it in there? And why do you? What power of beauty do you think that it has for people? Yeah. Um, I mean, I just touched on it a little bit with my, um, it was my last response there. In the end, if, if people buy the book, they'll see around, you know, I'll, I go through all these different versions and then around page, page 230, I turn toward my own okay. understanding of the cross. And what that really is, um, is an understanding that God fully immerses God's self in the human experience mm. in the person of Jesus. That's, that's, I think, the uniqueness of Christianity. It starts with the incarnation. God has all these failed attempts with Israel to build unity and build trust, and none of them ever works because there's always this gap between God and humanity. Mm. And it's just so evident in the history of Israel that they, God and humanity are struggling in their relationship because of this gap. And in Jesus, God closes the gap and becomes fully immersed in the human experience and really has total solidarity with humanity. But, you know, if, if Jesus would have been whisked into the clouds like, you know, um, like Elijah was, for instance, um, then, well, there'd be one part of the human experience that God would have exempted himself from, and that's death. Mm. Well, God didn't exempt himself from that. God instead showed his solidarity with humankind all the way to the end, as, as Paul writes in Philippians 2, you know, even to death, death on a cross. This wow. Most humili- this most humiliating type of death, um, that, that's, that's the length to which God will go to reunify himself with humanity. So that's where I think the cross does something that, you know, no other uh, or few other kind of things 
could have done to bridge that gap between God and humanity. Dude, that was beautiful. Wow. Man. So uh, before we, before we you know, end our time with you today, um, there are a couple yeah. questions that we, we really like to ask all of our guests. Um, the first one being, um, and, and I think you kind of touched on this a little bit in The New Christians when you talk uh, about your conversations with Anthony Smith, um, just in regards to his reference to uh, Martin Luther King and the fact that you made the point that you know he walked with not only African Americans but whites, Jews, etc. And one of the things yeah. that we really emphasize on our show is the importance of um, community and the importance of of opening up our doors to people of other backgrounds, of other cultures, of other religions, even. Um, so maybe you could speak just briefly about how important it is to not only just read. Um, other religious texts and, and things outside of your own comfort stream, uh, but how important it is for us to embrace other cultures and, and learn from them as well. Well, I think that's the big challenge now. That's that's the next big challenge for Christianity is um, will we be able to coexist on this planet with other um with other religions and people who believe other things and people who believe nothing. And, um, I think when, you know, as, as you guys and I, I mean, who knows people are going to listen to this podcast a thousand years from now, probably yeah, because we're going to shoot it out into space. But while you, <laughs> while, while, while we're recording this, like one of the biggest issues in, in the U S right now is, like who gets to use bathrooms, which gender gets to use bathrooms. Right. And there's legislation in multiple states to, to say that people are, um, you can only use the bathroom of the gender that's on your birth certificate, which means that people who are um, gender fluid or gender confused or who've gone through actually some kind of transgender um uh, experience and even surgically have changed genders, they still can't, you know, they, they're still, they would be restricted to only using bathrooms of their, of their birth certificate gender. This is being driven by Christians. This, I mean, there's recently been people, you know, journalists, since this is now happening in multiple states, are like, who's behind this? Well, they find out there's uh, a think tank of conservative evangelicals in Florida, and they have basically written this legislation, and they've gotten it to sympathetic legislator, legislators in all 50 states. And so far in like 15 states, these legislators have introduced this uh, legislation. So I only use this as an example um, of Christians, how Christians are dealing with um their their faith in this pluralistic environment and those I think that's an example of not dealing with it well. Mm-hmm. Um you know what I'm saying. Um yeah. yeah. So yeah that that's where I'd say um you know I think a lot of Christians are they're okay with this. They are, but, um, and and with moving into this new era in a pluralized society, others really are not, you know, we're just really not doing this well. Man. 
So I guess the last question we have for you, and this is another one that we like to ask um, of all of our guests, but um, I think you you speak to this so well. Um, what we like to ask is just if you were in a room, and um, this question is based just purely off the fact that we have so many different people who listen to our show from so many different backgrounds, as Adam mentioned uh, before we started recording, people of more of a non-religious, atheist, agnostic background, all the way to the other side of the spectrum, more of a fundamentalist, conservative uh, bent. Um, so if you were in a room and you had people from both sides sitting sitting there, um, you know what, what would you say to kind of bring them to turn to one another and at least start the conversation? Oh, man. Um, you know, I guess I would... One of, the, one of the ways that I've tried to get... Um, conversation going for when I've been in inter interfaith groups is to ask the people in each group how they're like to imagine a conversation between the founder of their religion and the founder of the other religion. Because let's say you're talking to a Muslim and, and uh, you've got Muslims and Christians in a room and they're, you think, man, how are we, you know, like, this is a tinderbox in here. But, but, they, but they really venerate their founders, Muhammad and Jesus. So you say, let's imagine, a con- let's imagine that Muhammad and Jesus um, meet each other and sit down for a cup of coffee like, how, and talk for two hours. Like, what do they talk about? How do they treat one another? And, of course, no one's going to say, oh, you know, Muhammad would pull out a sword and cut Jesus down or whatever, because Mohammed venerated Jesus as one of the great prophets. Right. So then you would have this conversation, right, between the two. You could do the same with Abraham and Mohammed or, or Jesus and the Buddha or things like that. So I think because when, when you can put it in the historical and in that kind of hypothetical and you ask people, imagine what that would be like, that that's the one place I've ever I mean, the one thing that I've ever tried where I've had some success. That's really great, man. I, I, I think the use of imagination is something that we need to see a lot more of. It seems like one of the problems here that, that causes us to all look at each other with the sense of dualism and competition and tension is because we're not imagining what it might be like to be in the place of the other. And I think that all great spirituality and all great humanism even labors to, to level the ground and labors to, to increase compassion. And I, I love that old Greek term, ecstasis, you know, ecstasy, to get you out of yourself for a minute. So I really appreciate that, man. I appreciate what you just said so much. That was, uh, you, you've, cooked my, you've cooked my brain, man. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Well, I mean, I've just been around longer, so I've had more opportunities to uh, try and fail. Yeah, yeah, you just got such a, a just you can just tell by talking to you that you're a guy that's sharing what you've heard, what you've learned, what you've been through, but at the same time there is a a generosity and a graciousness to all sides to everyone that I pick up when I talk to you and you're just a fun dude to be around, man. I'd love to have a beer with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, you guys I drink a lot of beer, so so do we, man. So do we. So do we. <laughs> well, when, when you're drinking beer, I'm I'm guessing you're probably binge watching some television as well. 
Oh, nice segue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think I think uh, I, I think we are living in the golden age of television. I agree, so, man. I agree. <laughs> it's amazing, right? It's yeah. completely amazing. So, um, yeah, it's it's um, it's it's just really captured my attention because I think I'm, I'm a real believer in the fact that in the idea that different media are good at different things. So, oh, yeah, right. you know, a, a, a blog post is good for one thing. A novel is good for another thing. A newspaper article is good for another thing, you know? And um, I think for a long time, people had a very one-dimensional view of television and what it could do and be. And once in a while, you'd see, like when I was a kid, I remember the Roots miniseries. Oh, sure. Kind of shattered that. But yeah. it was kind of a standalone thing, and then it went away. And but that idea of these, like, what we used to call mini-series, and now we call serial TV, where um, you have a show that just runs for 10 episodes, like the recent People vs. O.J. Simpson yeah. um, uh, dramatization of, of that trial. You know, that was just a standalone 10-episode thing, or HBO's done some stuff like that, or or something that runs multiple seasons but doesn't just run forever and ever until they can't sell ads anymore, but just runs like the wire, you know, just like runs for five seasons and then it comes to an end because they've told their story. So a buddy of mine who's, he's got a PhD in theology and film. Um, and I, uh, his name is Ryan Parker. We started a, first it was kind of a blog series and then we turned it into a podcast called, uh, killer Serials. See what we did there? Killer Serials. I get it. That's I get awesome. it. <laughs> and we're currently talking about The Path, the first season of The Path. Oh, it's so good. so good. And which I know you guys are watching too, and I mean, yeah. um, it's it's an incredible show. We just uh, posted this last night. Hulu released episode five. Yep. And uh, man, it is, it just, that show it's just bringing up so much stuff about religiosity and people and what you really believe and what you don't believe. It's, yeah. it's been a fascinating show to watch. So yeah, I, I love for anybody who wants to, if you just go to iTunes and search killer serials, uh, you'll see it. Tony, I'm subscribed. I, I've got my phone out. I'm literally subscribing Absolutely. right now. Love it. So, love um, it. Where else? Where else can people? What's the? Where, where's the best place uh, for people to go to uh, to get a hold of your work? TonyJ.net. Um, I blog. I don't. I'm not actively blogging anymore, but I blogged for about eight years, almost every day. So I've got thousands of blog posts. People can read of my thoughts and links to all my books there, um, and a lot of uh, different you know media. I've done you know whenever I've been interviewed or other podcasts or um, on TV or whatever. I've got those links so you can find out a lot about me there. Of course, I'm also uh, got a Facebook page um, and I'm on Twitter pretty actively. So yeah, people can track me down. Excellent. Well, we will we will definitely uh, put that all in the show notes so people people know where to go. And uh, nice. we just we just want to thank you so much for doing this. This was a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, Tony, you're a freaking riot, dude. Yeah. We'd love to have you Thanks, back. Thanks, guys. I'd love to come back anytime, for sure. Oh, uh, we've got to do it, man. And um, we know you're going to sell at least three more copies. 
of did God kill nice. Jesus? <laughs> and that's that's like a dollar a copy, so I hey. can like go buy a cappuccino at Starbucks. Right. Definitely, man, and, and you should. You just go buy it right now because that money is as good as there. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> All right, good to know. Well, Tony, thank you so much, man, and we can't wait to have you back again soon. Thanks, so, guys. Alrighty. Right now, all I can think of is the scene in the movie Step Brothers. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Where he's like, did we just become best friends? <laughs> do you want to go do Kung Fu in the garage? <laughs> What's your favorite dinosaur? One, two, three. Velociraptor. <laughs> I was t- I've done such a good job of controlling my fanboyness. And uh, I'm not- yeah, Tony Jones is another one of those guys where I can't believe I wasn't more familiar with his work. Yeah. Before we kind of started this journey, John, but what a, the guy's just, he's not trying to be Mr. Churchy Pants. He just wants to call a spade a spade, keep it real, quit being super religious and actually talk about what's actually going on. Yeah. Let's stop trying to control this thing. What's going on? Let's talk about it. Let's be real. Let's be people, but let's be intelligent. Yeah. I think um, as soon as I started to dive in to the new Christians, um, I think that really, again, it's one of those books, just kind of like when we when we spoke with Greg Boyd, where it really just kind of hit at the heart of what it is that we're attempting to do here. Mm. And um, and and he he's such a good writer. Yeah, and it's so accessible. In Dude. fact, like you know, the biggest problem, the, the thing that we try to avoid on our show is is kind of like this hyper intellectual language. That people are like, what in the heck are they talking about? I felt like we were in a pub. Yeah. Like and, drinking beer. And 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 Tony Jones, uh, the way he writes is he writes, uh, he doesn't dumb it down, but at the same time, he has these little definition boxes he puts throughout his his book, uh, where anytime we come across a very, you know, religious term, he breaks it down and defines it and explains what it is that we mean by that term. Mm-hmm. It's just so good. Very entertaining, very quick read. Um, highly recommended. It, it. Highly recommend it. He really just talks about what's going on in, in the church today. And uh, he, he taps into, you know, you'll hear us talk about um, emergent Christianity and, uh, you know, uh, what, what that kind of means, where it started and kind of, you know, where the church is heading. And, you know, just not to put too fine a point on it, I don't care who you are, if you live anywhere where there's like, you know, first world westernized civilization, Mm -hmm. uh, the person and the, the crucifixion of this guy, Jesus, is front and center in your life all the time, whether you want it to be or not. It's, it informs the literature we read. It informs the movies we watch. It informs the culture that we have and the battles within that culture. And to, to go to the center of that, you know, if, if Jesus is like a hurricane, to go to the center of that hurricane, that storm system, and really start to try to figure out exactly what people are so afraid of, what people are trying to protect, what kind of language is sacred versus unsacred, what perspectives are 
you know, vindicated perspectives and what perspectives are fringe or heretical perspectives, why it matters. Right. Those are the conversations we should be having. Right. But nobody wants to have them because nobody wants to get labeled a heretic. Right. And uh, I appreciate this guy. I don't, I can't say whether or not I agree with everything he says or not because I haven't read his work extensively enough. But man, I enjoyed that interview immensely. Yeah, I did too. I, I, I just had so much fun just talking to him and getting his perspectives on different topics. And like you said, I think he's just, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lack of just kind of this sugar coaty kind of thing that we see within the church that, that, you know, just allowed him to, to really be honest and in a way that is refreshing. And Mm. I think, I think that's what we're trying to do here with this show with, uh, with our podcast is kind of touch on some of the topics that are, have been kind of avoided, you know, where, you know, the church has been more consumed, and, and I think he talks about this in, in The New Christians a little bit, church has been more consumed with growth and how can we recruit, 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 and what's a good business model, what are best practices, instead of talking about theology and the things that really matter. Yes. So, man, I just I, I just thoroughly enjoyed that. I really had a good time with that interview. Me too, man. And dude's got a lot of books. Yeah, he does. I mean, he's been he's been writing. And he was speaking. a big blogger too for yeah. a long time. Yeah. So if you want to hear more, um, number one, we're definitely because we just became best friends. Um, <laughs> we're gonna have him back on the show. Uh, check out his podcast. It's super cool. Actually, yeah. before we recorded this outro, I, I, I you know, um, subscribed to it and checked out what it is. Yeah. Uh, it is the silliest fun. <laughs> like it's fun. Yeah. And they just talk like philosophically about like serial television yeah. and binge watching these shows. And what a blast. I mean, the guy has just got the perfect blend of reverence and irreverence yeah. at the same time. And I just love it. So I hope you guys love that too. Um, check out his work, check out his podcasts. And yeah. um, what else we got? Yeah, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. You guys know what to do. Keep sharing. One of the cool things that John and I were just talking about is. We are just like, we're super proud of this thing that you guys have chosen to be a part of because we're not spending any money marketing this thing and it's just growing organically in this grassroots kind of way. And we're just constantly getting new listeners, new testimonies, new emails, new questions, new suggestions, new um, critiques, new all kinds of things, criticisms, even vehement criticisms. (laughs) But all that means is that people are talking about it and it's being shared. Uh, None of that bothers us. It only excites us, every single bit of it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Continue to share it. Um, However you think that's going to be most effective, if it's word of mouth, if it's um, on social media somehow, just keep sharing it. Um, If you can give us a review in the iTunes store, that's great. Um, The only thing that I would ask, if you're just going to go on there and completely trash us, (laughs) how about shoot it to it in an email first and we can maybe talk about it before (laughs) it gets like frozen in iTunes cement. Um, (laughs) But you know what? You got to do what you got to do. And I never want to try to control what people are, you know, going to do to respond to this podcast. We want to keep it real. So uh, the other thing you can do is look in the show notes or look online for the donate link. Right. Uh, We... We just want to just keep asking you guys to support us in any way you can. Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna keep listing all the expenses every time we do this, but it right. is. It is expensive, and it is. Uh, it has a lot of costs, and we feel very loved and very supported when we get even the smallest donation. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, as as the donations come in, and as as you guys feel inclined to help support, that's only going to benefit us in the way that. We will be eventually, hopefully, our, our, our goal would be to go back to an every week 
uh, release schedule, and and we just we just can't do that right now with uh, full time jobs. Adam, poor Adam, has two uh, two jobs on top of the podcast, <laughs> and we both have kids, young kids. So um, we it's just uh, we've been running at a at a fever pitch uh, for the past two months. <laughs> So the more you can donate, the more that you feel uh, driven to do so. Um, it's just going to help us be able to afford to spend the time and 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 get the right people around us to help us get back to a weekly schedule. But until then, unfortunately, it's going to have to be an every other week thing. But uh, we will have some opportunities coming up that we can't talk about yet. But we have a couple big things on the horizon big. that are coming up this year and into early next year. Big, huge. That you guys can help support, and <laughs> yeah. we have some really cool, unique, one of a kind. Uh, type things that, you know, swag and other, other things that you'll be able to get your hands on. Packages. Yeah. Surprise packages exactly. of deliciousness. So look out for that. Hey, we love you guys. Every single one of you, no matter who you are listening to this podcast, this is a safe place for you. It's a safe place for you to explore and interact and get involved with whatever it is you're wrestling with in terms of life and faith and spirituality and uh, philosophy and anything that's uh, causing you guilt, shame, tension, stress, things like that. So continue to tell us where you want us to take this conversation and we will take it there. We couldn't do this without you guys. We love you so much. With that, yeah, that's another wrap up (laughs) on the Deconstructionist Podcast. We are your hosts. I am Adam Narlock. And I am John Williamson.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.